Thank you, Anne. Um, now, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to, to see you all. Um, now, up the back there, if you've got, if taking notes helps you, there's um, on, on that back bench there, there's an outline of the talk, um, and there is also a, a transcript, if following along, uh, you would find helpful. Uh, now, just I'm after a show of hands, sort of to begin with, who here has experienced bad back pain? Got, yeah, okay, right, a few of us. Um, I never realised how bad back pain could get until about nine years ago. I was playing soccer in the church's comp, which was pretty rough actually, um, out, out near Penrith when the uh, the opposition sent a through ball uh, um, behind our defenders and I was the goalkeeper at the time and I, I ran out and dived at the ball and grabbed the ball and sl- sort of rolled over like that with my momentum and the striker just ran straight into me, didn't try and jump over me or anything like this, literally ran straight into my back and the pain was immediate. Uh, I came off the field and it took me about five minutes just to walk from behind the goals around to the halfway line and I'd felt a crack, right? Um, any movement just sent shoots of pain up my back. Um, I was recently asked about, you know, to give a, a pain rating out of, out of 1 to 10. And I was trying to think, oh, what's a 10? And I thought, that was a 10. Like, that, that, that's my 10 rating was how, how that felt. Well, the game soon ended. And that's when my friends Julius and Molina stepped up to the plate. So uh, they helped me into the car which was parked their, their car, which was a little bit further away. Again, a tediously and painfully slow walk. They drove me to the hospital. They uh, waited with me until Amanda could get there. And uh, they were there when I got dressed into those very revealing <laughs> hospital gowns that show way more of your back and your backside than really should be seen. Um, and uh, and then they then went home, when Amanda arrived, they went home to look after our boys uh, while Amanda was with me in the hospital uh, until I eventually came home from hospital via KFC, of course, because I was doped up on painkillers and just had this craving. And, um, and uh, anyway, they saw me... Uh, they saw me in great pain, they saw me weak, they saw me undignified, they saw me hardly able to move and in all of that they went out of their way and spent hours to try to help me. Um, and so it's a, a kind of uh, small price to pay that I've been getting ribbed about the whole KFC thing by uh, Julius and Molina for nearly a decade. And um, if he's watching this on YouTube at some later time, um, he will be wetting himself right now because he always does. Um, but I, w- I guess what I say there's, a, there's a, a few acts that people have done for me in my life that I will never forget. And I won't let myself forget them. And that is one of them. Have you ever experienced something like that? An act that you will never forget. An act that you will never let yourself forget. Well, in today's passage, there's three. Three. One beautiful, one ugly, and one that changed the world. 
But before we look at the passage itself, let me get us up to speed with where we are in the book of Mark. If you've got a Bible with you or on your phone, if you have that open, that would be helpful. Ever since Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem back in chapter 11, all the action has been centred on the one place, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Jesus has come as God's Messiah to the house of God and he's found the worship corrupted and he's found the leadership of God's people united against their own Messiah. And it began with Jesus proclaiming judgment on the temple as he threw out the money changers and it culminated last week in chapter 13 with his great promise of the temple's devastating destruction. The drastic demonstration that God's old covenant with his people was truly and forever over. That the Lord's vineyard will be taken back from its traitorous tenants and handed over to others as the gospel is preached throughout the world. But what now? If the temple is going to be destroyed and the sacrifices ended, what's going to replace it? How does sin get atoned for? Well, that's what we're going to see over these climactic final chapters of the book of Mark, beginning with today. Now, our passage today is centred around two meals. Let's have a look at the first one. Uh, We're starting at verse 1 of chapter 14. Now, it might help to remember that where we've left the Jewish leadership, right? Um, After all of the disputing in the temple, Jesus um, has left them totally schooled as we might say, um, in front of all of the crowds. So he has foiled every single attempt of theirs to trap him. He's turned it back on them. And at every step along the way, the crowd has been tremendously impressed. In fact, the last we heard of them, they were actually delighted. They were lapping it up. They were going, this is amazing. So if the leader's strategy was to turn the crowd against Jesus they failed miserably. Of course, they still want him dead. They're still determined to do that. But they need a plan B now to achieve it. And they need to be careful. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. Now, the Passover and the festival unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said or the people may riot. You see, not only were the crowd delighted in Jesus, but the crowd was also getting really big. You see, the population of Jerusalem had swollen by multiples. You know, one of the great Jewish festivals was about to take place, the festival that commemorated the dramatic beginning of their nation, really. The night that they fled from Egypt as they were set free from 400 years of slavery. The night when the angel of death, as was read to us before, passed over every house that was marked by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, as we heard in the reading before, this is a very important moment. It was never to be forgotten. So this is not the time that you want to make enemies and offend the crowd because there are so many people things could very well get out of hands as they sometimes do with crowds so what they couldn't achieve in the open they'll have to try to do in secret they'll have to try and do with cunning 
And that plan B is going to come from an unexpected source, one of Jesus' closest followers. And the catalyst for that betrayal came about at the first of our two meals. Now, some may be aware from John's Gospel that this meal actually takes place earlier in the week. It takes place six days before the Passover. But Mark tells us about it here. Now, I'm going to say more about this in the podcast tomorrow, but the short answer as to why is that Mark is deliberately grouping the decision of the leaders to go secret with the moment that Judas resolved to betray Jesus so that they come together right before the night of the betrayal itself. He's joining the two together. But while that might be their plan B, the very same incident shows that the result of their scheming would be the outworking of God's plan A. What Jesus has been saying needed to happen all along. Now the meal takes place in Bethany at the home of a man called Simon the leper. Now we can assume that Simon is no longer a leper, otherwise he wouldn't be having big crowds around to his place for a meal. Um, But it's not Simon who Mark draws our attention to, but to a woman. Now we know from John's Gospel again that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Mark does not want to draw our attention to who she was, but rather to what she did. And boy, did she cause a scene. So while they're reclining at the table, which is the way they would have meals, um, uh, rather than sort of sitting up on chairs with a nice high table, they would recline around it. And while they're reclining, she came with an alabaster jar, of very expensive perfume, verse 3, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's of wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. All right, let's take a step back for a moment. What just happened? What exactly did she do? And why were some of the people there so upset by what she did that they would tell her off harshly? Well, first, let me tell you a little bit about nard. Um, Mark tells us that the perfume was very expensive. He's not kidding. Right? This was seriously high-end stuff. Now, nard, we're in Israel. Nard came from Nepal and India. All right? Um, and, it, and it came to those places via, from those places via the spice trade. And it comes from a plant that grows between 3,000 metres and 5,000 metres of altitude. Now, wherever it was in ancient time, whether it's in Egypt or Greece or Rome or Israel, nard was considered a luxury item. It was even used as incense in the worship at the tabernacle and for the anointing of kings. Now, the woman kept the perfume in an alabaster jar, like a, um, a polished translucent stone. It must have been close to her most treasured possession. Perhaps a a gift from a mother to a daughter or, or a family heirloom that she was to take into a future marriage. And its scent was extremely strong. You didn't need to use a lot of it 
for the aroma to be enjoyed. Well, John tells us that she had about half a litre of the stuff. This would probably have lasted practically the best part of her lifetime. But this day, at Simon's house, there would be none of this a dab here and a dab there kind of business. Mary takes this precious alabaster jar and she breaks the jar and she pours the whole bottle on top of Jesus. Now, can you imagine what the place would smell like if someone poured out half a litre of strong-smelling perfume? But it wasn't the smell that offended them. It was the expense. Now, you might think, oh, that's, that's pretty mean-spirited, isn't it? Well, hold on for a minute. It was worth more than a year's wages. Just think about that. I was looking for an equivalent in today's terms. Well, I found out that in 2022, right, at the moment, if you want to buy it, a bottle of 1937 Domaine de la Romanie Conti Grand Cru, apologies for my French there, um, sells for $73,228 a bottle. Slightly more than the average yearly wage in Australia. So imagine watching someone coming along to a Sunday lunch and in front of everybody, smashing a bottle of $73,000 wine and pouring it over someone. What a waste, right? Imagine the difference that $70,000 could make to so many people rather than pouring the whole lot out onto the floor. Well, Jesus' view views what she does very differently to the rest of them. Look at what he says in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I think one of the things that stood out for me this week has actually been reflecting on Jesus' words right here. There's almost a, a vulnerability there, isn't there? He's deeply troubled. He's deeply, not troubled, touched, I beg your pardon, by what she's just done, deeply touched. He calls it a beautiful deed. And in his next words, you can see why he's so moved. You see, on multiple occasions, he's told his disciples, like we did in in the family spot earlier, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be killed. And he's merely days away from a torturous death that he knows is coming. Have you ever thought what it would be like to be on death row and to be told that your date's coming? what that experience would be like, it's two days away for Jesus. A death that he's going to go through and not not for his own sins, not because of anything he deserved, but because of the sins of other people, including the ones that are in the room. Now, how would you be feeling? What would be, yes, he is the son of God, but he is also fully man. And if you can imagine what it would be like to be walking towards your death, then place yourself in Jesus' shoes and how vulnerable you would be feeling, how stressed. Now, we don't know why the women, woman did what she did right then. Remember, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem 
to the cries of Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So it could be that she's acknowledging Jesus as Messiah, that she's choosing to honour him with the most precious thing that she has, the sort of stuff that you anoint kings with, right? And she's the fact that she's pouring it onto his head might suggest such a thing. But it could also be that she's been listening. His disciples might still be in denial about Jesus' many predictions of his death, but maybe she isn't. Perhaps she has chosen now to express a devotion and thankfulness that she feels she might not have another opportunity to do. Maybe it's a combination of the two. Now, we don't know her reasons, but we certainly know how Jesus saw what she did and why what she did was so precious, so beautiful for him. Look at verse 7. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want. That's what you're really concerned about. You've got your opportunities. I'll turn up. But you will not always have me. And boy, does he know that. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. You see, his, his upcoming death is never far from his thoughts. And of course, it's going to never be far from his feelings. And so Mary's act of extravagant devotion and thankfulness has touched Jesus' heart. You know, just like the widow at the temple, she gave all she had. The overwhelming scent of precious perfume to mask the overwhelming prospect of his death. A touch of sweetness before the horror. This was something that Jesus would never forget and that he would ensure by his next words that the world would never forget. Truly I tell you, verse 9, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, even in Gladesville right now, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So how jarring then that such a beautiful act would provoke the most vile one in human history. Provoke it. That Jesus would let such an expensive waste of money take place was the last straw for Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, the Jewish leaders were looking for their plan B and in verses 10 and 11, plan B comes up and knocks on their door and they were happy about it. Well, the scene is now set and we move to our second memorable meal. Now, I want you to notice the detail that Mark gives us about the timing of this second meal. Look at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, all right, so this meal was the one 
where the lamb commemorating the lamb from back in the day whose blood was wiped on the doors to protect them um, from death was sacrificed and eaten. This was that day of the meal. Now, this, you can imagine, is not a five-minute activity. You've first got it. You can't go down to the butchers. You've got to find yourself a lamb and do the deed, right? It needed preparation. And his disciples asked where they're to go and do that. Um, but it appears from verses 13 to 16 that though they are the ones preparing the meal, Jesus has been long prepared for all of this and has been preparing it for a while. In scenes that are just like where he prepared for his triumphal ride into Jerusalem, remember when he said, go in there, you're going to find someone and they're going to have a donkey and it's going to be tied up and you're going to do this, does the same sort of thing here. It appears that everything is already put in place in advance by Jesus. So just like then you get the sense that something very important is about to take place, very significant is about to take place. But that night, Jesus begins by sharing some dreadful news, verses 17 to 20. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now notice the repeated emphasis on the fact that they were eating together as he says all of this. Three times we're referred to it. So far in Mark, think about the meals that we've seen. Meals have been the scenes of hospitality, the scenes of welcome. They're almost representative of the kingdom itself. Where, where repentant tax collectors and sinners and other outsiders are brought in to the, to the circles, the immediate circles of the king. It's the place where disciples are taught. Meals are where the kindness of the saviour is shown. But almost invariably, again, throughout Mark, as we've seen already today in the previous meal, it is such occasions of grace that are also the times when the true outsiders, those that are hostile to the king and his kingdom, are also shown for what they are. And there is no greater example than this meal. See, the Passover meal is the kind of meal you have with your family. A deeply special occasion for all the Jewish people where you would you choose to celebrate it with the people that are closest to you, that are most special to you. And Jesus says, while they're sharing this meal together, that one of you will betray me. And not just one of his disciples, there were many disciples, but one of the twelve. Jesus specially chosen in a circle. Now imagine you were there. Imagine you were one of the twelve. Imagine the sense of dread that would fall over that meal. It would be stunning news. You'd be going, surely not. But imagine another thing. Imagine the hot flush going through Judas right now. He knows. He knows. Yes, Jesus knows. And don't you think Judas should have known that he would have known? Had he not spent years with Jesus 
and watching him deal with every single challenge, answer every trap, turn it away every barb, masterly control the things that are going on around him, masterful in his knowledge. Had he not predicted his betrayal on multiple occasions? Jesus knew the hearts of his enemies and his friends. He knew what his mission was. He knew what he was sent to do and he was determined to go and do it. And he has a message for his betrayer. He was very aware, very prepared and very angry. Verse 21. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. So he's He's in charge. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. I want you to ponder that last line. When we use phrases like that, we tend to be warning of trouble, don't we? We're kind of going, they'd better watch out, I'm coming for them. And sometimes we even mean it. But when the one whom God will give all authority on heaven and on earth says it, when it comes from the lips of the one whom the wind and the waves obey, when he says, it would be better if you never lived than to be the one who betrays me, then that is terrifying. Tragically, Judas's act too will never, ever be forgotten. But it's now that the reason for all of the preparation becomes clear. This will be a Passover like no other. For the old lesser covenant is about to end and a new greater one take its place. The old narrow field of the people of God is about to end and a new people of God that would extend to all nations would replace it. And so the symbols of the old salvation would now also point forward to the new and greater salvation. In the old Passover meal, the story of their salvation from Egypt would be retold by the head of the household as parts of the meal were eaten. They were explained so that the meaning of the meaning of the meal would never be forgotten. That was the whole point of it. The Passover lamb itself, the the unleavened bread that reminded them of the haste of their deliverance, the bitter herbs, and in time, wine was added to the meal as well, when various set questions would be asked of those around the table. But now Jesus is going to give new meaning to them. Verse 22 to 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. My blood, he said to them. This new covenant, this new salvation, this new people would be the result of the death of the man they're having the meal with. It would be his sacrifice that would set them free and give them new life. 
It would be the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood on behalf of them and many, many others that they must ensure they never, ever forget. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death before, but this time it's different. Just like the very first Passover was celebrated immediately before the salvation that it promised was delivered, so it would be this night. Verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel was that the kingdom of God was near. Well, think of the meaning of Jesus' words here. The long-awaited kingdom of God, promised from the very first book of the Bible, is going to be in place the very next time Jesus has a drink of wine. When he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to finish today by calling us to remember and to reflect about three things. The first one and the most important one is this. Remember the one who willingly walked towards his own death for your sake and for mine. Remember that it would be his own body and his own blood that would pay for your sin and for mine. That the judgment that should be coming your way, the death that should be coming your way will pass over you because of his sacrifice, because of his willing, planned and above all gracious death. Never forget it. Never It is not mere remembrance. Oh yeah, that's right, that happened. It's deep remembrance. Yes, every time we remember the gospel, every time we encourage one another with it, but especially when we share the Lord's Supper together, we need to remember both the cost and the kindness that makes us his people. We remember the magnitude of his sacrifice such that it should replace all other needs for sacrifice, all other needs for priesthood, all other needs for a temple to approach God. That it is his body and blood and only his body and blood that prevents a just judgment falling upon every one of us. And that that happened once and for all time. Every believer has dodged a bullet because it hit the Saviour who stood in front of us. It's why we reconcile with one another before we share the Lord's Supper. It's why we shelve our pride. It's why we confess our sins together at the time. It's to blow away our pretensions, isn't it? It's to refocus what our ambitions are in life. It's to produce in us humble dependence and deep unity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Second, we're never to forget Judas's betrayal or Jesus' verdict upon it. A very chilling verdict from Jesus himself. Better that he had never been born. We need to hear that and we need to not forget it. Now, while there's only ever going to be one Judas, right? There's only one who will actually betray the Son of God and hand him over to be killed. We can't expect, even though that is only going to be one Judas, but we can't expect a different verdict, can we? If we reject Jesus just like he did, why, why would the verdict be different? Surely there is especially a warning here for those whose hearts, perhaps, have been growing hard towards God. Some sin, pride or or resentment, maybe, has been growing in you. Do you recognise that at all in yourself? Do you find yourself being tempted to walk away from Jesus? Well... What do you think Jesus' verdict will be on those who've heard the gospel, who understand the sacrifice that's been made for them, who've studied God's word, who have even claimed belief and then turn and save him who died for us, I don't want you. I don't want your sacrifice. I'm offended by your grace. Your death means nothing. Why would we ever think that there would be no consequences to such an act? If you're recognising some of that in yourself, or maybe, maybe you've never yet asked for Jesus' forgiveness and turned to him as your king, please do so and please do it today. In fact, here's a way you can do it. Make the most of the opportunity that we're all going to have in a few moments' time when we share the Lord's Supper together and pray, and pray perhaps for the first time with real meaning behind the words that we'll be praying. But third, remember the beauty of what the woman did. When Jesus says it should be retold wherever the gospel is preached, you know it is worth remembering, worth reflecting upon, Uh, worth emulating. Jesus willingly went to the cross for us and Jesus wants those who he died for to love him for it, to worship him for it, to think little of pouring out the most valuable thing that they have in thankfulness for all that he's done. That scene is a glimpse into the blessed relationship that God desires to have with us all. That's why he died in the first place, to redeem for himself all the people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, to love us and be loved by us for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. We rejoice in his astounding grace. We um, celebrate the fact that he was willing to do all of that for we whom he loves. 
Uh, Father, help us to love you in return. Help us to um, be ever vigilant for hard-heartedness, lest we do what the sort of thing that Judas did. And Father, help us all to, to have such a love for you that we want others to know about the wonderful thing that Jesus has done for them too. Help us never to forget. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.